Well, hi, everyone. I want to thank you for joining us today for our service. I uh, have been waiting for this opportunity for a long, long time. You know, the other day, uh, I came across something that I've treasured for a long, long time, and, and that is this collection of campaign buttons that I've been putting together since I was a teenager. Finally put it in this case, probably when my, in my early 20s or so, and uh, I've just been collecting these. Uh, I have another bag full of campaign buttons that aren't part of this case. I wish I was able to do that. But I want to just show you, because I know it's kind of a distance thing here. I thought I'd just show you a couple of the buttons that I have here. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, by the way, that over the years I have collected uh, buttons from candidates who are Democrats and also from Republicans. Uh, here are a few Democrat buttons. Uh, some of these might ring a bell with some of you older folks. Uh, first one is George McGovern. George McGovern, Senator McGovern of South Dakota, ran for president in 1972 and lost. Uh, here's one uh, of, uh, here's a Kennedy button. I'm not sure if this is a John Kennedy button, a, a Teddy Kennedy button, or a Robert Kennedy button. Probably was a Robert Kennedy button. And here's a button, uh, Jimmy Carter, who was uh, our president in 1976, I believe. Jimmy Carter. And then this one uh, goes way back, Lyndon Johnson, when Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey uh, as ran as his running mate. So these are some pretty old uh, buttons here. Here are a few Republican buttons. This first one here is uh, Richard Nixon. Now more than ever, Richard Nixon. Then here's a Reagan-Bush button. And this one is really fascinating to me. I just, I just uh, noticed this when I, when I took the photo to, to put it up here. Notice the slogan underneath uh, this button. Let's make America great again. Isn't that hilarious? Let's make America great again. Who, I wonder if Trump stole that from them. And then here's a Barry Goldwater button. He ran for president in, in uh, 1960. Uh, four, I believe, and got smashed by uh, President Johnson. And here's a really old one, Wendell Wilkie. Wendell Wilkie ran for president against uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I believe, and, and lost in a landslide. And here's one I kind of get a kick out of, um, and that is Clint Eastwood. Ran for mayor and was the mayor of Carmel, uh, 1986 to 1988. And my favorite button in this collection, my favorite one of all, is uh, this one here, President Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt from his campaign in 1904. And no, I did not work on his campaign. All right, so this is my little collection. And I wanted to show this to you just to give you an idea of just how much politics has meant to me over the years. Uh, I think I got in, interested in politics when I was 13 years old. It's gone on for decades. Uh, you might know that after I graduated from college, I got a job working for a very prominent politician in Los Angeles to work for him for about seven or eight years. Uh, later on uh, I, in my career, I came back and worked for another very well-known politician uh, and did that for about a year. All that to say that I've always been very passionate about politics. I used to say that it was in my blood that I would eat, sleep, and drink politics. And those who know me from way back will confirm, can confirm all of that. And um, when a candidate, when the candidate that I wanted uh, to support or, you know, wanted to win, when he didn't win, which was often the case, I would 
going depression. I would be depressed for, for weeks, sometimes months, because I was so passionate about my particular candidate. If politics had a Richter scale from 1 to 10, I would have been a 10, easily a 10 uh, on the political Richter scale. I was crazy about politics. You, you could almost say that politics had become kind of an idol to me. Um, and you know what my registered or my, my you know, how my reg friends registered on the political Richter scale? My friends would have registered a zero on the political Richter scale. My brother would have registered a minus three because I didn't have any friends, even family members who cared a rip about politics. I mean, they didn't care anything about politics, right? So let me ask you something on a political Richter scale from one to 10, where are you at? Are you a 10? Maybe you're an eight. Maybe you're a zero. Maybe you're a minus three, like my brother. You could care less, right? Well, as you know, in five weeks, we're going to have a national election, a presidential election. And frankly, I have never seen more people more worked up about an election than they are about this one. And today, I want to do something that I've never done in the 28 years that I've been a pastor, and that is to speak to you about politics and the election prior to the election. Now, I have spoken and addressed uh, campaigns after it was over so we could pray for the president, but uh, I've never spoken to the church, to you, before an election. And, and I want to beg you, stop right there. Don't, don't, turn, it, don't turn off your, your TV or your YouTube, don't please hear me out, all right? Because I believe this may be one of the most important messages you will ever hear. I really believe that. Before I begin, I have a huge favor to ask of you. And I don't ask, uh, I don't think I've asked you ever for a favor, but I have a, a huge favor to ask of you today. And I want you to do something. What I'm going to ask you to do may be one of the hardest things some of you have ever done, and, and it's this, but I really need for you to do this for me. I want you to take your politics, whatever it is, right, and whatever political predispositions you may have, and I want you to check in at the door. Check it in at the door. If you're a Democrat, I want you to take your, your Democratic views and check it in at the door. If you're a Republican, I want you to take your Republican leanings, check it in at the door. Same thing, if you're an independent, maybe you're a strong climate changer, maybe you consider yourself a, a, a socialist or, or liberal or a progressive, uh, a, a libertarian, a capitalist, a conservative, uh, maybe you're a union activist, a nationalist, a Marxist, a militarist, whatever it is, right? Whatever your political predispositions are, please, right now, just check it in at the door, just for these next 40 minutes or so. And, uh, and I want you to, to hear this message, not as a Republican or a Democrat, but I want you to hear it with the ears of a child of God, right? As someone who is a believer in Christ. I want, that's how I want you to hear what I have to say today. So will you do that? And then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. 
And you can pray with your eyes open and with your eyes closed, but the prayer is very short. It's very simple. It's this, Heavenly Father, I desperately want to hear from you today. Please speak to me. Please speak to me. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you pray that prayer? Heavenly Father, please speak to me. And then I want to pray for one other thing. Late this week, we heard that President Trump and First Lady uh, were um, tested positive for the coronavirus. All right? So I want to open up our time in praying for him. And if you have a problem, me praying for him, then it's possible that maybe you didn't check in your political predispositions. All right? So check those in. All right? And let's pray for, for the president and for his health and for his, his, uh, his first lady, his wife. Okay, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for, for bringing us together today to tackle very difficult subject uh, during this time in our nation's history. And Father, we were all shocked by the, the news that our president and first lady uh, have tested positive for COVID-19. And God, regardless of you know, our views of him, he is our president. She is our first lady. And we ask, Father, that you would bring um, your healing hand to bear on his life and her life. We pray, Father, in fact, we pray for all those throughout our country right now who are afflicted, who are suffering from this coronavirus. We ask that you touch each and every one of them. Father, we, we, from, from, head, from the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet, touch their bodies and bring healing to them. Father, continue to protect everyone who may uh, have been exposed um, at the White House and in uh, and, and places where the president has been. You would protect them as well. And protect our church, God, um, as we gather later this weekend for our uh, worship and communion service. God, protect us and allow us to have a really wonderful time together in fellowship and worship and communion. So, Father, again, speak to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you probably know by now, Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was uh, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, passed away just uh, recently, September 18th. She was one of the most liberal members of the Supreme Court. Now, she was preceded in death by another Associate Justice, Antonin Scalia, in February 2016. He was one of the most conservative members of the Supreme Court. Now, what you may not have known about these two individuals was that Ginsburg and Scalia were best friends. They were best friends. They were on the opposite side of nearly every opinion that they had to write. But when, it, when the work was done, at the end of the day, they were best friends. And they and their spouses would go to the show together. They loved opera. They would actually dress up and go to the opera together. They spent every New Year's Eve together. They went on vacations together. Here they are riding on an elephant in India. Ruth said of Nino, we were best buddies. We were best buddies. And Nino said of Ruth, quote, what's not to like about her except her views on the law? What's not to like about her? 
Regardless of what you may think of either of these individuals and their work on the bench, their passing is a great loss to our country, if only because they showed us that you can be on the opposite ends of the political spectrum and not just be civil, but you can still, you can even be friends. You can still be friends. And it is very possible that when they died, that all political civility died with them. You know, one of the reasons why I decided to address this issue of politics and the election, because I am deeply concerned that the political incivility that we are seeing in our nation today um, can even make its way into the church. And I'm beginning to see glimpses of that as well. And it, if it makes its way into the church, it can split and wreck the witness of the church uh, if you haven't already, grab a Bible, grab something to write with and write on, open up our South Bay Community Church app, which would be the best thing, and, and then I want you to write this one down. Here's the first thing that I'd like you to write down uh, from our message today, and that is this, Christians have a responsibility to vote. We have a responsibility to vote. Now, we, we have a civic duty to vote. Now, if you're looking for a verse in the Bible that says you must vote, you're not going to find it. It's not there because it doesn't exist. Now, there are a number of verses, however, that speak to our responsibility as citizens. For example, after the, um, the Babylonian invasion, after Babylon came and, and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC and they took the Jews hostage, the Jews arrived in Babylon. Here's what God told them. Take a look at Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Here's what God said to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I'm saying to you. Jump down to verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So God told the Jews who were now living in a foreign land, they were exiles, they were refugees in a foreign land. God told them that they should seek the welfare of the foreign city that they were now in because if their city that they were living in did well, then they too would do well. In other words, they had a civic responsibility to their city. You know, one of the ways that we can seek the welfare of our own city and our own country is to participate in the democratic process by voting. If we elect godly men and godly women to serve in government, it will have a direct bearing on our own lives. Our country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. When the United States Congress met for the first time in 1774, it was called the First Continental Congress. Somebody painted this picture of what it might have looked like. And the very first order of business when they met for the very first time was the reading of Psalm 35. First order of business, the reading of Psalm 35. And then a moving prayer was offered by one of its members, Jacob Duche. Here's part of what he said in his prayer. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, high and mighty, King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers on earth, and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over all kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down, we beseech thee, on these our American states. 
Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle things on the best and surest foundation that the scene of blood may speedily be closed, that order, harmony, and peace may be effectually restored and truth and justice, religion, and piety may prevail and flourish amongst thy people. Preserve the health of their bodies and the vigor of their minds. Shower on them and the millions they here represent such temporal blessings as thou seest expedient for them in this world and crown them with everlasting glory in the world to come. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior. Amen. And that's how our country began. That's how it began. And God blessed America. That's what happens when a nation and its leaders put God first. He blesses that nation. Psalm 33, verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And then, over time, over decades, over generations, we started to drift. We started to drift away from God with each passing generation. Instead of getting closer to God, we've strayed further away from God. And when we move away from God, there are serious consequences. And the consequence is this, that God will remove his hand of blessing from us and from our nation. And that's what we're seeing today. Several years ago, I got one of these. You heart, your heart skips a beat every time you get one of these, right? A jury duty summons. I was so excited. Not. Seriously, I don't know of anyone who enjoys jury duty except my wife, Cheryl. She loves going to jury duty. She's always disappointed when she's not chosen to serve on a jury. Well, when it was finally my week to serve, on Sunday evening, you call that number, enter in your jury duty ID number and a PIN number, and they tell you whether or not you have to go in that Monday. So I called in, and I found out that I did not have to report for jury duty on Monday, and I was thrilled. Well, Monday came, and I, that evening, Monday night, I called to see if I had to go in on Tuesday, and I didn't have to go in on Tuesday. And Tuesday came, and I called Tuesday evening to see if I had to go in on Wednesday, and I didn't have to go in on Wednesday, and I was so excited, I gave everyone a high five, even the dogs. And then Wednesday came, and I called in to see if I had to go in on Thursday, and I didn't have to go in on Thursday, and I thought, I'm almost home free, one more day, one more day, and Thursday night came, and I called, and I was told that I had to report to the Compton Courthouse on Friday morning. And so in I went, and I was not a happy camper. I was so bummed, and I was hoping that I would not be impaneled on a jury. Here it's Friday. I was almost home free, and I'm sitting in the big jury room, and, and my name is called. And now me and a bunch of other people, we have to make our way to a courtroom. We went to our courtroom, and, and then after we were briefed on the case that was before us, uh, we were each individually interviewed by the judge and by the attorneys. And all I kept thinking 
when I went up to that box to give my name and tell them what I do, and, and when they asked me all these questions, all I could think of was, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? What excuse can I give the judge to get out of this? And I know that's what everyone else was thinking because they were using all kinds of excuses about why they needed to get off, and the judge would have none of it. She would have none of it. She was tough as nails. And wouldn't you know it, much to my chagrin, I was picked to be on a jury. Not only that, after we went into the jury deliberation room, they chose me to be the jury foreman. And to be honest with you, I was not happy. Um, I, I didn't like the judge very much because she didn't let me off. But then something happened during the trial. I watched her deal with the prosecution and the defense with an extreme amount of fairness and firmness and intellect and my respect for her sword. When I finally walked out of the courtroom on the last day, I thought to myself, good riddance, I'm out of here. And I just skipped out of there and I was so happy. As fate would have it, two weeks later, Two weeks later, I ran right into the judge. I ran right into the judge, and wouldn't you know it, guess where I ran into her? I ran into her right in the lobby of our church. I ran right into her in the lobby of our church. She happened to be driving by on 190th Street, looked up and saw our church, and said, hey, that's a church. I'm going to that church. So she pulled over, came inside, and decided to worship with us. And when I ran into her, I was shocked, and I said to myself, oh my goodness, you're the judge. And she said to me, oh my goodness, you're the pastor. And guess what? She and her mom have been with us ever since. Let me introduce you to her. This is the Honorable Teresa Magno. She emigrated to the United States and the Philippines when she was 16 years old. Went to UCLA, and then went to UCLA Law School, after she graduated, she got a job as a deputy district attorney. And then in 2014, she became the first Filipino-American to be elected to a Los Angeles County Superior Court judgeship. First one to be elected. A few months ago, she was re-elected without opposition. I'm so thankful that God impressed upon her heart to run for this office. And she has done such an outstanding job as a judge. Another exemplary public servant is Councilman Henry Sanchez uh, of the city of Lomita. You might recognize Henry because Henry has been attending our church for years, serves in our men's ministry, another outstanding leader. And these two individuals show us that Christians can and should run for political office. They can and should run for political office. You can write that down. And by the way, Henry is stepping down from the city council next month. And I know that he will be greatly missed by his city. You know, to some degree or another, we are all in the business of sizing people up. If you're a single person, you might be sizing someone that you're dating. You might be sizing them up, trying to determine whether or not he or she might be a good fit for you. If you're an employer, you might size up prospective employees to see whether or not you want to ask them to come and work for you. Uh, we do the same thing at election time. We size up candidates to see who we're going to vote for. As Christ followers, there are a number of benchmarks 
that I believe we must take into consideration when sizing up candidates. And again, that's why I want you to check your predispositions in so that you would hear what the Word of God has to say. These are not my benchmarks. These are God's benchmarks. These are His values. Let me tell you what they are. First, look for someone with impeccable character. Look for someone with impeccable character. When we look for someone to join our staff, uh, we filter them through the grid we call three C's. The three C's, character, competence, and chemistry. Character, competence, and chemistry. We size them up based on these three C's. And the first one is character. And the reason character is number one is because when the Apostle Paul uh, spelled out in 1 Timothy 3 what kind of men should be chosen by the church to serve as elders, here's what he said, 1 Timothy 3, 1, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that would be an elder or a pastor, he desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. You can stop right there. To be above reproach means you've got to have character. You've got to have good character. And so Paul said the very first thing to look for in an elder or a pastor is their character. And that's the first thing that we try to sniff out when we're looking for something to, to bring somebody on our staff. We ask questions like, does this person have integrity? Is this person honest? Is this person humble? Are they morally upright? How do they act? How do they speak? What kind of words come out of their mouth? What do they post on social media? How do they treat people? Are they kind? Are they gentle? Are they loving? Are they righteous? Are they godly? Those are the things that we try to evaluate. And these aren't qualities that apply only to pastors and church leaders, it should apply to all leaders. It should apply to all leaders, especially to those who aspire to the highest office in the land. Do you know why? Proverbs 11, 11, the next verse says, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. Proverbs 14, 34, next verse, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. You see, the Bible tells us when, when a leader is upright, a city is exalted. God exalts a city. When a leader is righteous, God exalts his nation. And that's why character is a non-negotiable when choosing a leader. Second, look for someone who values life. Look for someone who values life. One of the long-standing axioms at our church has been people matter to us because people matter to God. People matter to us because they matter to God. In other words, God loves people, therefore we ought to love people. Because everybody has been made in God's image. Everybody's been made in God's image. And it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't even matter if you're still an unborn child in your mother's womb, growing and kicking in your mother's womb. Every life is precious to God, which is why God abhors racism. He abhors racism and he detests abortion or murder. You know, January 22nd of this, of this year was the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which was a ruling by the Supreme Court legalizing abortion. 
Since that fateful day, the National Right to Life Organization estimates that 62 million babies have died because of legal abortion. Think about that. 62 million babies. It's more than all the people that have ever died in, in the wars that our country has fought in. 62 million babies dead because of a Supreme Court decision. And if that isn't bad enough, I understand that today there are governors in our country who are moving to legalize abortion, legalize abortion so that mothers can abort their babies even at nine months when they're ready to be uh, birthed. Now, to those who support abortion, don't think for a moment that God doesn't know what's going on. He sees everything. He sees everything. And one day there will be a reckoning. Genesis 9, 5 says, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. See, God will judge. And I believe the day is coming when America will be held accountable for the deaths of 62 innocent unborn babies. And that's why it is absolutely critical that when you size somebody up, that you look for candidates who value life because this is an issue that matters to God. Third, look for someone who will administer justice. Look for someone who will administer justice. The last king of Judah was Zedekiah. Zedekiah was a... Was a um, was a, came from a line of kings starting with David. So David was related to him. And, and David, Zedekiah was the last king uh, from the line of David. And you might remember that Zedekiah was the king when Jerusalem fell uh, to Babylon in 586 B.C. He was the king. One of the reasons why Jerusalem fell and was destroyed in the first place was because Zedekiah didn't lead as God asked him to lead. And uh, how did God ask him to lead? Take a look at Jeremiah 21. Jeremiah 21, 11 says, Moreover, and he says this to Zedekiah, Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no, burn with no one to quench it. God's message to all the kings of Judah, to all the kings of Judah from the house of David, including Zedekiah, was administer justice. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. In other words, be a voice for the voiceless. Speak up for the marginalized. Stand up for the have-nots. And in case they missed it, in the very next chapter, God repeats these instructions. Jeremiah 22, take a look at verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message here. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah. You who sit on David's throne, you, your officials and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. 
Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. God said, administer justice. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. Leaders are to lead with justice. They are to do what is just and right. They are to rule equitably and even-handedly, even those who don't have in society. And so we must size up leaders on the basis of whether we believe they will be just and whether they will be right. Another important trait, character that is important to God. And do you know what God says will happen if leaders aren't just? The very next verse, chapter 22, verse 4. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, horses accompanied by their officials and their people. In other words, God will bless you. If you are just, he will bless you. Verse 5, but if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. If they aren't just, this palace will become a ruin. That's exactly what happened. God allowed the Babylonians to come in to Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and they wiped it out. Destroyed the temple, destroyed the palace, destroyed the city, wiped it completely out. See, I believe our nation and every other nation will one day meet the same fate if we don't right the ship and elect leaders at every level, at every level from top to bottom who strive for justice. Now, let me ask you some questions. What does the Bible say about raising taxes? What does the Bible say about building a wall? What does the Bible say about trade between Mexico and Canada? What does the Bible say about defunding the police? What does the Bible say about building a bullet train from here to Las Vegas? Nothing. Right, nothing. And if it doesn't say anything about these things, what does that mean? Well, it means that it's not important to God. It's not a front burner issue for him. Conversely, what does it mean when the Bible says something about a particular issue like character or like the sanctity of life or justice? What does it mean? Well, it means that it's important to him. Another issue that scriptures speak very clearly about is marriage. That marriage is between one man and one woman. The Bible is unambiguous about this. And so the fourth benchmark for sizing up candidates is their view on marriage. So write that one down. Look for someone who believes in the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman. Now, what would you say, what would you say if I told you that I don't think that it's very fair that marriage should be between a man and a woman and that it's not fair and that's not very tolerant and people ought to be able to marry whoever they want to marry as long as they love each other and if two men want to marry each other, and if, or if two women want to marry each other, I will marry them. Well, some of you will think, that's great, right? Oh, we're so loving, right? But others of you would say, wait a minute. Pastor Gary, you better really think that one through. Why? Let me explain it this way. As you may know, I'm an angel fan, right? I'm an angel fan. And I think, unfortunately, most of you are Dodger fans. Now, does it bother me? That most of you are Dodger fans? Not really. Okay, just a little bit. But here's what I want to ask you, right? 
Should you be concerned that your pastor is an Angel fan and you're a Dodger fan? Should you be concerned about that? That somehow I might hold it against you that you're a Dodger fan and not an Angel fan. Because you don't value what I value. Should you be concerned? Absolutely. No, I'm kidding. Right? You should not be concerned whatsoever. Right? It doesn't matter to me that you're a Dodger fan. Because baseball is not important. It's just baseball. On the flip side, if God said, I value character and I value the sanctity of life and I value justice and I value marriage, shouldn't we value those things as well because God values them? 100% we should. Let me give you one more. Last benchmark. Look for someone who supports Israel. This is another one of God's values that he's ambiguous about. God loves Israel. We've talked about this a lot in our church. He loves, he loves Jerusalem. He loves the Jews. We learned last week that, that one day we're all going to our home and our home is going to be called the New Jerusalem. You know, a principal reason why so many people today, so many people hate the Jews is because the devil hates the Jews. See, the devil always hates and opposes anything and anyone that God loves. So for us to support those who hate Israel and to align ourselves with those who hate Israel and who hate Jews would be to oppose the very things that God loves. And we should never be on that side. So these are the benchmarks for sizing up candidates. Character, sanctity of life, justice, the sanctity of marriage, and Israel. Again, these are God's values. There aren't, you know, there's, it doesn't say anything else about, about taxes or anything like that. These are the things that God values. And these values must weigh more heavily upon us as we consider who to vote for more than the, the R or the D next to a candidate's name. With all that said, I want to ask you a few more questions. First, how important is the upcoming election to you? How important is it? On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is it? If it's a 10, why do you think it's a 10? Why is it a 10 to you? What's riding on this election that makes it so important? You may think it's the most important election in your lifetime. Second question. How nervous are you about the outcome of this election? How nervous are you? Now, from, the, from what I read on social media, a lot of people are very nervous about this election. Now, to give you some perspective, let me ask you some more questions. How important is this election to God? How important is this election to God? What's writing on this election for him? And how nervous do you think God is about this election? How nervous is he? Well, insofar as the last question is concerned, the answer is pretty obvious. God isn't nervous at all. He isn't nervous at all. Not only that, I don't think that God thinks that our election coming up in November is any more important than the ones that were held earlier this year in Peru, Taiwan. Let me give you the list. Guinea, Tanzania, Ireland, Iran, Poland, Canada, Greece, Serbia, India, Australia, Papua New Guinea, and Israel. Is our election any more important than the ones that were held there? Is God more concerned about our election than the ones that were held there? I don't think so. I don't know why it is that we think that our election is the mother of all elections. And the results of our election will determine the fate 
of the world. And if my candidate doesn't win, that's it. And if the Democrats don't control the House and the Senate, or if the Republicans don't control the House or the Senate, we're doomed. And we are lost forever. And there will be no hope for us. Which is why more people, including many Christ followers, are in an uproar. And civility has been thrown out the window. It's almost as if politics has become an idol, like it once was for me. And the whole country, it seems, is a 10 plus on the political Richter scale. Now, I can understand, I can understand how someone who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus will think that the only hope for our country is Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I, can, I understand that if they don't have any faith. But they're not the hope of the world. They're not the hope of the world. Who is the hope of the world? Who is the hope of the world? Jesus is the hope of the world. The next president of the United States is not the hope of the world. Our hope is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who reigns over all the nations. And here's what that means. First, insofar as how the election will turn out, we have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about. Because everything will unfold just as God intended for it to. He has it all planned out. He said so himself in Isaiah 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn. He has sworn. As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God has it all figured out. And, if, and even if things get ugly, God is in control. And everything will turn out according to his purposes. Therefore, you have nothing to be nervous about, nothing to worry about. Second, here's what this means. If Jesus is the hope of the world. Second, we ought to lower the temperature on our politics. Lower the temperature on our politics. Some of you are a 10 plus on the political Richter scale. I mean, I've heard Christians say, if Jesus was here today, he would be a Democrat. And I've heard other people say, if Jesus was here today, he'd be a Republican. And uh, these kinds of absolute statements don't bring God's people together. Uh, It only causes divide, and it only splits people, and it brings contention and strife. I think if Jesus were here, here's what I think. I think if Jesus was here, he would weep. I believe he would weep to learn that some of his own followers are so presumptuous as to think that they know what political affiliation he would be. And I think he would weep at the incivility and the contentiousness that is evident even among Christ followers. Here's the thing. If we truly believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, then let's be more concerned as a church about getting people to follow him than we are about getting people to vote for the candidate that we want to win. And that will probably mean some of you having to lower the temperature on your politics, on your social media, so that it doesn't get in the way of you telling somebody about Jesus. Because what you say about somebody could be a roadblock, a stumbling block to them. And they won't want to listen to anything you have to say about Jesus because of your political views. Finally, 
raise your devotion to Jesus because at the end of the day, we're just aliens and strangers passing through this world on our way to heaven. Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. In other words, if Jesus is all that matters, then amp up your devotion to Jesus. Be a 10 plus on the Jesus Richter scale and endeavor to make him known because our world, our world is hurting and our world is on a collision course with God and with disaster. One day he's going to show up and everyone will have to answer to him for the sins that we've committed, for the, for the babies that we've aborted, for the hatred that we have spewed, for the injustice that we have sown. And we'll all have to give an account and how good it is to know no matter what we've done, and we turn to Jesus, he will forgive us of all of our sins. Even if you've committed an abortion, he will wash you white as snow. And I hope that you'll turn to Jesus. Let South Bay Community Church be a church that is known not for its politics, but its, but its devotion to Jesus, because there is a lot of work to be done. We need to let the world know about him. Take a look at this video. You're the God of this city, you're the King of these people, you're the Lord of this nation, you are, you're the light in this darkness, you're the hope to the hopeless, you're the peace to the restless, you are, there is no one like I. is no one like our God. The greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. You're the God of this city, you're the King of these people, you're the Lord of this nation, you are, you're the light in this darkness, you're the hope to the hopeless, you're the peace to the restless, you are, there is no one like us. 
great. Well, let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for reminding us today that you have a particular perspective of this election that ought to put every one of our hearts at ease. You are a God who's in control. You're a God who will work out your plans and purposes exactly as you want. You are not freaking out like so much of America is. And Father, you've called the church to tell everyone, the whole world, about your son. And I pray that that's what South Bay Community Church would would be about. That, Father, there's a city that is hurting. We have a nation and a state that is in desperate need for you. There's work to be done. God, help us to do it. Lead us and guide us and show us. Allow, I ask that you would expand our boundaries. I pray that you would allow our influence to grow so we could point people to you. So, Father, thank you for your love for us. Put our hearts at ease. Speak to us. Give us wisdom on how we should vote. Help us to be good citizens. But then, at the end of the day, remember, help us remember that our citizenship is ultimately with you. Thank you, Father. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.